You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. I hope you are well. It's wonderful to be together with you. My name is uh, Craig. I serve on the pastoral team here, and uh, I just want to add my voice to the others in saying uh, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Before I jump into the text, I wanted to remind you, in case you weren't here last week, that we're in the season where we're making our pledges for our Generations Fund offering. Uh, You can actually get a card for this out in the lobby if you would like to give, or you can just go on our website and see it. So this has been historically a fund where we're preparing for the next generation. So we have, uh, we use it to help pay down our principal so that we can hand the keys of this building over to the next generation uh, mortgage-free, and uh, they are not, will not be encumbered by, um, you know, any kind of mortgage payment. Uh, and then we always give the Generations Fund for some other use as well. So this year, half will go to uh, pay down principal on our loan, and then the other half of every dollar that we receive will go to the Anna Church plant, which we're sending out, which is really exciting. Uh, we are sending out a, a team of people, and Rob Tombrella is leading that team. Uh, Rob is not with us today because he is at a church in Melissa. Uh, he is at City Church of Melissa. They have uh, numbers of people that live in Anna in that church. They are a like-minded church that we've gotten to know. And uh, so they've invited Rob to come. They're announcing this plant and introducing Rob, and we'll be encouraging uh, some folks from their church uh, who especially live in Anna to participate in the plant. So that's very exciting. Uh, And he's over there today uh, sharing with them what is going on here as the team is forming to be sent out. So anyway, I want to let you know that, and as you give, we'll be giving to fund that, uh, that work that the Lord has called us to. Uh, Today we're going to be in the next passage from where we were last week. We're in Acts chapter 8. We're working through the book of Acts. And where we are in Acts now, we've seen that persecution has come to the Christians in Jerusalem. This is when the church first started. They're brand new. They're in Jerusalem. Uh, Persecution has come. There's a martyr. Somebody's been killed. And, um, And now the church is scattered. Now, the Lord is using this in a good way because as they scatter, it says that they're sharing their faith with people wherever they go. And so the gospel is spreading out of Jerusalem as Jesus said it would. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus said that he would uh, pour out his spirit uh, and that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea, the surrounding area, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So last week we saw how Philip took the gospel to Samaria. Amazing things happened in Samaria. Many people came to Christ. There were miracles happening. Uh, Just phenomenal uh, what happened. The apostles came and laid hands on the people of the new believers in Samaria. They kind of had a Samaritan Pentecost like the first Jewish believers did in Acts chapter 2. And uh, so we see how God has brought the good news to Jerusalem, to the surrounding areas of Judea, and now we're at a part in the story where he has taken the gospel to Samaria. Today we're going to see how he begins to reach the ends of the earth. But I want to do something a little bit different today, a little different than how I focused previously. Uh, We've been looking at this macro picture of how the gospel is spreading from one place 
to the end of the earth. Um, and I want to do that today. But I also want to look at a micro level because today's account is not about a city in Samaria. It's about one individual. So I want to look at how God prepares and saves this individual and see what we can learn uh, ourselves about bringing the, gospels, the gospel to individuals. What can we learn about personal evangelism even from the story that we're going to read today? I actually think there's a lot to learn, and so we're going to take some time to focus on that. So let's look at Philip. Uh, he, he had gone to Samaria and brought the gospel. Here's what happens next, beginning in verse 26 uh, through 40. Let's listen to God's word. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, uh, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation, his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and, the, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I think this is such a powerful passage for many reasons, but for one is this. This passage shows us how God providentially prepares circumstances and prepares people so that he can save people through personal evangelism. That's what's going on here. He's preparing this whole circumstance. We're going to see that in the text. He's orchestrating all of this. He's preparing an unbeliever. He's preparing a witness and he's going to save that unbeliever through the power of personal evangelism. And I want to talk about that some today. Now, just the mention of evangelism makes many of us nervous uh, because we feel like, well, I'm not very good at that. I'm not very faithful at that. I'm, I'm more kind of a keep-to-myself sort of a person. Or, or sometimes we react to the idea of personal evangelism because we think it just means sort of getting up in people's faces 
uh, just sort of directing things the way we want them directed. Maybe you've been a part of a conversation like that where you felt accosted by someone where there was no relationship. It didn't feel like any real genuine interest in you. It just felt like more perhaps of a uh, sort of a, you know, an unpleasant and forced conversation. And that's not what personal evangelism, I believe, really is. I don't believe it's supposed to be some unloving, sort of forced uh, conversation where someone is just looking to try to get away as quickly as possible. Sometimes we associate evangelism with people in conversations who just try to do too much. Uh, That's not what this passage teaches at all. But people who just try to do too much. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you think, man, you are, this is way extra. You are just trying to do too much in this conversation. I had such a conversation. I was um, with my wife. We were in London. Uh, I had a footwear problem and had to get some new footwear. We were walking a lot of miles. I needed to get some new shoes. So I went uh, to the Adidas store Uh, in London. It's pronounced Adidas. Uh, In Europe, it's pronounced Adidas. It's a German company. It's not Adidas, just just preparing you. So if you ever go there, you won't sound ignorant. And I'm just, just here to serve. I'm your cultural concierge leading you into the world. And uh, so I'm at the Adidas store, and uh, whatever shoes you like, whether, whether you wear Nike or New Balance, uh, I'm, I'm just there. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm talking to the sales lady, and she's uh, telling me the shoes are a little different there, and sizing's different. She's explaining it to me, and these are great. You're going to be on your feet for, uh, you know, a lot of miles. These are the shoes you want to get. So she showed them. I said, great, I'll try them on. So she goes and gets me the shoes, and as soon as she leaves, another customer starts talking to me. I'm a friendly guy, but this guy starts talking to me. He's been overhearing my whole conversation, and he says, hey, so you're looking for shoes to really walk in, and I said, yes, that's what she's for, not you. And I'm thinking this. And he says, oh, wait, you don't want to get Adidas. Uh, That's not what you want for walking. You want Allbirds. That's what you should be getting. That's what he was wearing. Now, he's at the Adidas store uh, with me, but telling me I'm doing the wrong thing. You want to get Allbirds. And he begins to tell me in great detail how wonderful these shoes are and how they're great for walking, how he's walked miles and miles and miles, and he's going on and on. I didn't ask to be in this conversation. It's a little awkward. He doesn't know anything about me. But he's just telling me all about Allbirds, and then he does too much. He looks at me and says, would you like to try mine on? And my immediate thought was, I'm not sure there's anything in this moment I would like less than for you to remove your sweaty shoes that you've walked miles in and for me to put them on, which would be weird anyway. The lady comes back with my shoes and I'm walking around just, oh, hey, giving the Allbirds a test run here. Just bizarre at every level. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, I don't want to wear your shoes. I don't want to wear your shirt. I don't want to share your toothbrush. I, I really don't want any part of any of this that's going on right now. And I'm thinking, I want to be polite. What do I, I, how do I just simply say, no, that's gross. What what do I say? So he can tell I'm hesitant. So he says, oh, no, no, go ahead, try them on. What size do you wear? And I'm thinking, okay, this is my out because if we don't have the same size shoe, then I won't have to try his shoes on. So I simply tell him I'm size 16, 16 and a half. (laughs) I didn't really say that. I I told him my size. 
And he said, oh, too bad. That's too big for me. Uh, too, you know, your shoe's bigger. I guess it's not going to work. But you really got to get all birds. And he keeps going on. Bring out my shoes. I tried them on. They're perfect. Bought them. And life went on. But in that conversation, I thought, I wonder if I'm feeling like some people have felt when somebody shares the gospel with them. It's not personal. It's not loving. Doesn't even know your name and yet is foisting personal things like put my shoes on, on their life. But I didn't feel any kind of sense of care. I just felt like this guy's a nosy person listening to me and then trying to voice this. I didn't walk away from the encounter. I don't know his intent. But I didn't walk away from the encounter thinking, there's something lovely about the Allbirds of which he speaks. I didn't walk away wanting the old buds. Uh, I walked away thinking, wow, I'm glad I got out of that conversation. And if that's your impression of evangelism, I think it's the wrong impression that evangelism is something that ultimately God does. It is God orchestrating. It is God preparing. It is God using us to open our mouths and communicate with someone else. It definitely involves boldness. It involves courage. It involves faith. It involves risk. But it ultimately is to be done in approaching and engaging someone where they are, as they are, and bridging them to the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, which is what happens in this event. One of the reasons I think we're nervous about evangelism is because we think it's all about us. And this passage makes it clear, oh no, it is the work of God who does it all. So, first of all, in this passage, we see that God is preparing a witness. He's preparing Philip. Look at verse 26. What does it say? It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south uh, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So from the beginning, the passage is clear. God is wanting us to know that he is the one who initiates the mission. He sends an angel and says, I want you to go somewhere else. God is clearly sovereign in salvation. Now, the beautiful truth is that he involves us as, uh, he involves humans as an agent to share his message. That's the glorious good news. We get to participate in the most powerful exchange possible. The sharing of good news with someone so that they can move from death to life, so that their eternity can change, their eternal trajectory can change from hell to eternal life in heaven. And we get to represent Christ, we get to watch him work in, in, uh, in people's lives as we participate in sharing this good news, to watch him rescue people uh, by his grace. Now, the angel's instruction is really surprising, and it's one of the reasons that I think it's completely legit to focus on individual um, sort of evangelism in this passage, because the Lord is doing something unique. He's telling Philip to leave a fruitful revival. Philip is in Samaritan, where mir Samaria, where miracles are happening. People are being delivered of demons, people are being healed, people are believing in the gospel, people are being filled by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit as the apostles came down and laid hands upon them. And he says, I want you to leave this fruitful field where I am doing amazing things, and I want you to go, what does he say, to a desert road. I want you, verse 26, to go to a road that is a desert place. I'm going to pull you out of this fruitful ministry, and he doesn't know this at the time, but take you to one guy, one person I'm going to go after 
and I'm going to take you to be my mouthpiece. And he immediately, verse 27, he arose and went. I think this is a blind obedience. I mean, at least we don't know that he said, here's exactly what's going to happen. The story doesn't read that way. It reads as if he just follows and sees what the Lord is going to do. Now, I think many of us can read this passage and instantly say, I can't relate to any of this at all. And granted, he's being instructed by an angel, and we can't relate to that, okay? So there is something very different. But I think there's something that is similar here as well that the Lord wants us to see, and that is God is always behind the scenes working. He's working to prepare us as his gospel Uh, ministers to share the grace of God with others. And he's always working in people in countless ways that we cannot see and we cannot imagine. Philip could not imagine on a desert road, there's going to be a guy driving along in his chariot that he's going to encounter and the man's going to come to Christ. He couldn't dream that up. He's not thinking about that. But God does this. He will prompt believers at just the right time, at just the right place to open their mouths and watch him work. So Philip goes down, and he goes to the place where God tells him to go, and he sees a man who is riding in a chariot. He's been worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem, and this guy is headed back to his country, which is Ethiopia. Verse 29, the text says, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Again, what, the, what the, Luke, the author, is making so clear to us by the power of the Spirit is that the Lord orchestrated all this. Tells him to leave where you are, tells him to go to another place. Once he gets to the place, says, the guy in the chariot, go talk to him. Tells him very specifically to go to the guy in the chariot, and there's going to be a divine encounter. Now, again, we don't talk to angels or get angelic instruction, but Have you ever had the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever sensed the Lord leading you in a conversation? Have you ever sensed the Lord leading you to approach someone, to speak to someone? Are you alert for these kinds of opportunities in your day? Now, to be sure, we have a command to take the gospel to others, so we don't need Uh, promptings to tell us to obey what God already told us to do. So we clearly have direction to reach out to other people. But I think that the Lord, if we are listening, will often lead us in various ways, in a relatable way that I think we see in the passage here. If we're people with a genuine heart that breaks for the lost, if we're people that pray for the lost, If we're people who approach our day saying, Lord, I'm available today, who would you lead me to encounter today? I think if we do that, the Lord will open our eyes to see people and to be aware of opportunities. I know my problem is, I believe God prompts. I've had that experience, but my problem is I'm so busy with my agenda, I'm not listening The problem is not that God's not speaking anymore or God's not prompting or the Holy Spirit's not nudging anymore. The problem is I'm not listening. That I've got my agenda. I've got what I'm going to do. I'm going to be here. I'm going to do that. I'm going to see this person. I'm going to go there. And I, I don't even have time for the interruption of the Holy Spirit leading me to do what he may want me to do in any given moment. Some of us may not be open to the prompting of God because we're fearful 
that God would lead us into some circumstance that would be beyond us and that we wouldn't know what to do. And so we just don't want any part of that. We just don't even pay attention. I think that evangelism normally, the normal course, the most typical pathway of evangelism is connecting with friends, connecting with family, connecting with coworkers. I believe God places us in certain places, surrounds us with neighbors, surrounds us with coworkers, um, gives us our family of origin and our extended family, and places us there that we might be a witness, that we might be a light in the darkness. And I think that's the primary way because we have trust with people. There's a relationship. They could look at our life and at some point see Christ work in us. Or when we fail, hopefully we confess our sins and we're humble and they see us as imperfect, but they see us as people who are seeking to honor the Lord with our lives anyway. And so I think the normal way that God saves people is he connects them in a meaningful relationship with a Christian who shares the gospel. However, I also believe that God enables us to interact and connect with people that we may not know well and may orchestrate a divine opportunity just as we read here. God prepares us as witnesses so that we are ready to share with people that he brings into our lives. Secondly, the Lord prepares an unbeliever because he's not only working in Philip, he's working in the, in the Ethiopian eunuch's life as well. And it's thrilling to see what he's doing. Here's what we find out about the guy. Verse 27, uh, Philip arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we find out some things about this guy. First of all, he's from Ethiopia. He's African. Uh, Ethiopia at this time would be where modern-day Sudan is. So he lives modern in, in, in modern-day Sudan. And he is a, an official. He is a government leader. So he is, uh, works for uh, Candace, who is queen of the Ethiopians, and he is in charge of the treasury. So he's like the secretary of the treasury, a finance minister, something like that. He's in charge of the nation's uh, finances, a very responsible position. He's a, in, a, in a leadership role, and he's riding back home in a chariot. Now, this is not like a war chariot that you might see, like someone going out to battle in. Uh, this is a different kind of chariot. Most um, scholars say this would have been like a wagon kind of a chariot that was covered, uh, would have been pulled perhaps by oxen. Uh, so this is more like a vehicle of transport and not just a vehicle of battle. And they were uncommon. The fact that he's riding one of these just emphasizes he's a man of means, He's got money, or at least he's got access to the queen's chariot, whatever. He probably has an entourage with him. He probably has other government officials with him. And there's one more indicator in here that the man is a man of means. He's got money. He's reading a scroll of the book of Isaiah. Now, we can take for granted that we can just pull up our phone and we have the scripture or we have a, you know, the written version of the Bible. Most people in most history of history have not had this. It is a choice gift from God. To have a scroll uh, that had been copied, the, the, the prophet Isaiah had been copied onto would be very valuable, very rare. So this guy has somebody probably driving his chariot and he's reading a scroll 
of the Bible. He is a, a powerful man. He's coming back from Jerusalem where he's gone to worship. He, he's likely not Jewish. He's probably a Gentile God-fearer, um, and he has been there to worship the Lord. Uh, and this is really a story of an outsider who, is contact, who, who, who encounters an insider, Philip, who's been with the believers, who's been with the church, who knows God, and he's an outsider as someone who's probably not Jewish. As a, as a uh, eunuch, he would have been an outsider as well. And, and now he's going to be an insider. As a matter of fact, many point out that he represents the ends of the earth. Ethiopia would have been the ends of the earth. So we probably have the first picture here of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We already got that. Now the ends of the earth. Later, we're going to see a guy named Cornelius, who's a Gentile that's going to be reached. That's very clearly the ends of the earth. So this is, God is showing us the gospel progress. How did the church spread? How did the gospel spread? But he's also sharing, us this, sharing with us this very personal story of an individual. We get a, a profile of what this guy was like. We also get a profile that highlights God's providence in evangelism. I mean, what are the chances that this guy's going down a road when one of the only people in the planet that we've read about that's preaching the gospel publicly just happens to be there? And, and what are the chances that he just happens to be reading the scroll of Isaiah? And of the whole book of Isaiah, which chapter most clearly describes the ministry of Jesus Christ? It's chapter 53, and that's what he's reading. He's actually got the Bible open to Isaiah 53. What, what are the chances of that all happening. And so he sees the chariot and the Lord prompts Philip to go talk to that guy. And he, he runs up to him. That must have been intimidating. Philip's just a regular guy from what we know. And this is a government leader. There may be people walking by with little things in their ears and armed and, you know, this kind of a deal. And uh, so he tells him to, to go and he goes over. And when he goes over, he hears him reading the Bible. Isn't God's providence amazing. There are people all around us that are like this guy. Now, I'm not saying you're going to walk out of here today and walk up to somebody out there reading their Bible who's just going to say, hey, excuse me, what must I do to be saved? I'm not saying that happens all the time. Maybe it happens very rarely that you happen upon someone reading their Bible. And yet, there are people all around us whom God is working in their hearts. God is making them deeply dissatisfied with life apart from Jesus Christ. God is piquing their curiosity because of something they saw in another Christian or something they remember hearing about Jesus. And, and they're wondering, they're pondering, they're going to bed at night wondering, what is the meaning of life? Why, why such an emptiness in my soul? They're accomplishing much in life and it's leaving them threadbare, feeling like there's got to be more than this. You don't know who around you is experiencing that today. Listen, this man would have appeared to have it all together. He had power, he had status, he had influence, he had prestige, he had connections, he works for the queen of a, of a country. He's on her cabinet, he's got connections, he's got everything that someone could want in life that shows that they have arrived. You could look at him and go, it looks like this guy has it all together. Why would he be interested in Jesus? Welcome to Frisco, Texas, where it appears that people have it all together. They have material things. They, many have 
family and jobs and nice places to live. And we look around us and it appears that people have no need. But this text just shows you don't know where someone else is inside their heart. You don't know what You don't know where they've just come back from somewhere wondering about God, wondering about the truth of the Bible, wondering what the Bible all means. We don't know who around us is like that. People often appear to have no need, but you don't know what's going on inside of them, how they're struggling, how they're hurting. This was shown to me in a metaphor that stuck with me. It's it's operated as a metaphor in my life. I I was flying one time, and I had the misfortune of of, uh, sitting in a middle seat. So I got in the middle seat. I come down. It's a smaller plane. It's not a full big big plane, a smaller plane. I sit down. I sit in the middle seat. And as I'm putting myself down, I glance, and there's a lady sitting next to me. And I only know how to describe her by saying she looked to me like someone that would be on the cover of a fashion magazine. Um, that's what she looked like to me. Now, I'm no fashion, fashionista. I do know how to pronounce uh, athletic shoe names, but I'm no fashionista. And, um, but I could tell she had natural beauty, and then she was dressed very, very, in very fancy kind of clothes. It looks like she was going to a, to a you know, a, 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 going to be shot, be, be filmed, or her picture taken as a model, something like that. And uh, so we, we didn't really have any conversation. We just took off. We're flying. And as we get up, as, as happens with smaller planes in turbulence, the thing starts rocking and rolling. You know, the plane's moving up and down. And before I know it, Miss Vogue sitting next to me is reaching her hand in the seat pocket and pulling out a bag and throwing up in a bag. And I felt, yeah, oh, that's how I felt. I felt so bad for her. But all of a sudden I thought, oh, she's just like the rest of us. Because here's the reality. You can be a homeless person on the street or you can be a model at 30,000 feet, but when you're puking in a plastic bag, we're all the same at that point, right? It doesn't matter how fancy you look, how beautiful you are, or how poor and uh, how ragged you appear. It does not matter. We, when we're sick, we are all the same. And I thought, that's the human condition. People can look very good on the outside, but inside we are all sick. We are all terminally sick with a disease called sin that eats away at us. We all by nature on the inside are the same. We are not born pursuing the glory of Jesus. We're born pursuing our own way. We're all selfish and proud and want the universe to be about us. And that expresses itself sometimes in great poverty and tragedy and sometimes in great wealth and beauty and riches. But we're all the same on the inside. And we're all needy of a Savior. The Bible says that we're all walking in darkness. When Jesus came, Isaiah said, those who were in darkness saw a great light. And darkness is darkness. You may be wearing nice clothes in the darkness. You may have pockets full of cash in the darkness. Your business card may say CEO on it. And your family may look great and wonderful and all together. But if you're in the darkness, you're in the darkness. And you need the light of Jesus Christ. And so this guy may have looked like someone who had it together, and, and Philip may have looked like someone that, that uh, was not powerful in the world's eyes. And yet God had prepared this wealthy man 
to experience his grace. He had been prepared with the message to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because God providentially prepares circumstances and prepares people so that they may be saved through the sharing of the gospel, in this case, through personal evangelism. God prepares a witness, Philip. God prepares an unbeliever, the Ethiopian eunuch, and then God saves through this personal evangelism. I think we learn some things here about the sharing of faith. Uh, Obviously, there are things unique in the story, angelic um, visitations being one, and the way the story ends as well is is, uh, unusual. But there's some things that are very common here, and the method of personal evangelism is very common here. I believe it reflects a standard Here's the first thing, is that personal evangelism starts where people are. This is cross-cultural. Philip reaches a man of a different ethnicity. He reaches a man of a different class, likely a higher class than he is, uh, reaching a wealthy, powerful man. But he starts with where the man is. He hears him reading, which from what I understand would have been common in the first century, would have been much more common for people to read out loud. We read in our own head usually, but it had been more common to read out loud. So he hears him reading, and he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? He enters where he is. He connects with what the man is interested in, what he is curious about. He doesn't go running up to the, uh, you know, uh, up to the, the um, chariot, yelling John 3, 16, not knowing anything about the man. He doesn't run up to the chariot saying, turn or burn. He runs up to the chariot saying, connecting with the guy and hearing where he is, where he is, where he is at. And he, he takes a, an interest in the guy, obviously. Do you understand what you're reading? And I, I get it that this is rare. You're not going to walk up to somebody. Man, if every day I walked up to somebody who was just reading the Bible, I could use this evangelism question. Do you understand what you're reading? And I could be a great evangelist as well. But I think the principle is you look to where, where are people? Where, what's, what's God doing in their life? What are they interested in? Certainly at this time of the year, an appropriate question is, do you understand what you're singing? Because people are singing Christmas songs all the time. Do you understand what's playing? Do you have a favorite Christmas song? What does it mean to you? I mean, we can enter into what, where, people, where people are. Oftentimes I find that, that God opens doors as we dialogue with people about the things that matter to them. This is mattering to the guy. He's just taken a long trip, a long trip, probably being pulled by oxen to go worship, and now he's going home afterwards, and he's still thinking about it. And so as we enter into people's lives, what matters to them? Their family, their work, their health their future, their questions. In this world today, their fears. What is it that concerns you? You find a lot about a person when you find out what concerns them. What are their burdens? What's weighing on you? What troubles you? You know, what, what are we afraid of? Often in crisis situations, it's an opportunity to come along someone and love them and, and enter in, not demand they come to our side. You got to wear all birds. What? You don't even know my name. Not that but entering into their world. Oh, I'm so sorry that your mom is hospitalized, whatever it is that they're grieving over, they're hurt, that burdens them, and enter trying to understand and then trying to build a bridge into the world so that we can connect their, them seeing their need with Christ, ultimately seeing their need for a Savior as we have opportunity to share to them the, the law of God, what God requires of us 
and how we failed and how we need a Savior. So he starts where people are. He actually gets up into the chariot and sits with the guy. The guy invites him up. It's a wonderful picture riding alongside him, talking about Jesus. Secondly, personal evangelism is biblically based. Did you notice that the eunuch is reading this passage from Isaiah about the lamb who is led to slaughter, verse 32, like a sheep, uh, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before it shears his silence, so he opens not his mouth. So that's Isaiah 53, I think that's verse 7, uh, verses 7 and 8 in the passage here. Um, and we know, if you're a Christian, we know that that chapter, uh, chapter 53, really describes Christ. But he didn't know that. And so he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how, how can I unless somebody helps me? And he asks Philip a question. He, he says, hey, is the author talking about himself or somebody else? And then I love what it says. It doesn't say, and then Philip shared his testimony. Sharing testimony is great. But it doesn't say Philip shared his testimony, verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. I, I think that's not just accidental. I think that we so easily can minimize the power of Scripture in sharing our faith with Jesus about Jesus Christ. The very Word of God is breathed out by the Spirit. It's the scripture that brings conviction. It's the scripture that brings the hope of the gospel. It's the scripture that opens our eyes to what Jesus has done. I had a good friend in college, and I remember him sharing his testimony with me. He said, I was eight years old, grew up in a Christian home. My older brother became a Christian, and I thought, I want to do that too. And my parents who had shared the gospel with me, they really went to trying to explain it to me. And he said they were sharing all these illustrations, all these analogies, and I could not get it. It just did not make sense to me. And he said, finally, my mom got out the scripture and began reading me Bible verses about what Jesus did. And he said, my eyes opened and exploded as reality to me as a kid. In other words, I couldn't get all the stories, that, the, the analogies that didn't make sense. Now, it's fine to tell an illustration. It's fine to tell an analogy. But it is the word of God that has power to bring a dead heart to life, to open blind eyes to bring conviction and hope. So we want to apply the scripture wherever is possible, wherever we can, start where people are, ultimately get to the scripture. And personal evangelism, thirdly, is focused on Christ. Not only does the gospel come from scripture, but the, 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 the truth is that sharing the gospel means we're talking about Jesus and not about just us. I think it's wonderful to share our testimony. It's wonderful to say, I was blind, but now I see. That's a biblical example. It's wonderful to talk about how God personally worked in our lives because we're connecting at a human level. It's humble to share our own need, and it's an entryway into their hearts often by sharing our own testimony. There's biblical examples of that. That is powerful. But at some point, we have to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is God and died as a substitute for sinners, that we are sinners, that Jesus died in the place of sinners, that he rose to defeat the power of sin, and that now we are called to repent from our sin and turn and believe in him. This passage speaks of Jesus, the lamb who went to slaughter, the one who was slain in our place. That was the very context of the conversation. It says that Philip, again, verse 35, he began with the scripture to tell him the good news 
of Jesus. So it's, it's entering, it's building a bridge into someone else's world to know them as a human and to love them. Not, a, not an evangelism product, project. Not, not a notch on your evangelism belt, but a human that you love that needs Jesus. It starts crossing a bridge to a person. It involves the scripture. It involves focusing on Christ in particular and what he did. And ultimately, it, it, it leads to a response. Verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he baptizes him. Now, the passage doesn't tell us that he believed, but it's, we can assume that. We can also assume that Philip told him about baptism. Well, why is he even thinking that? Philip must have talked to him about baptism. And I think there's something very powerful here, that the response we are to call people to is to believe and be baptized. That is Acts 2. Peter says that, believe and be baptized. To repent, to believe, and to be baptized. So in the evangelical world, at least the one I grew up in, but it's still common today, it would be to believe and pray the sinner's prayer. I'm not opposed to the sinner's prayer. It's just not in the Bible. There's really nothing in the Bible that talks anything like that. I think it's appropriate to acknowledge our need for God, to confess Christ, uh, to ask him to forgive and to save us. I think that's all appropriate and have prayed sinner's prayers with many people over the years. I, I'm for that, but I just want to be clear that the biblical response is to believe and be baptized. That's what we're called to. We're called to follow Christ in baptism, making public profession of our faith and acknowledging that Jesus has saved me, that I am united with him, that when I go into the water, it demonstrates that I am buried with Christ through baptism, and when I come out, it represents that I'm raised to walk in new life, that I am identifying with him, that he is the one who has saved me. It would be much better to say, would you like to receive Jesus? Yes, I believe. Yes, let's talk about baptism. That's the next step. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not joining a church. It's being baptized. That's the next step after faith. And I would just say, if you haven't been baptized, I would lovingly point you to the question that he asked. See, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? I would say to you, under that little trap door over there, if we lift that up, there is water. What prevents you from being baptized? There's something powerful about following Christ in the obedience of baptism, of going public with our faith as well. And that really is the response that is required. There's other things as well. Uh, obviously, I do believe in joining a church. I do believe in joining a community of believers. But I think the first thing is believe and be baptized. Now, we don't know what happens to this eunuch. Um, in the second century, certain authors have referred, like Irenaeus, for instance, uh, has referred to him and said that he became a missionary to the Ethiopians. I'm not sure there's hard history on that, but that is certainly mentioned. So he may have become an influential believer in Africa, probably one of the first uh, believers, at least in that part of Africa. Northern Africa already had believers from Pentecost, but where he's going may have been one of the first uh, believers. Uh, Philip, on the other hand, continues his ministry. Wow. So this is where we don't quite relate to Philip as well. Uh, Philip says it comes out of the water, verse 39. They come up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. 
So that means we do the baptism, we come up, we hug and say correct, congratulations, and Philip disappears. The Lord, it really means seizes him or yanks him away, seizes him away, takes him somewhere else. Book of Acts is a lot of amazing stuff going on. Uh, but anyway, God decided to take him to this other city. He passes through there. He preaches the gospel. I think what the Lord wants us to draw from this text is great faith in the power of God to save people. That God providentially orchestrates circumstances so someone's at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel. God prepares the witness. God prepares the unbeliever. And then there's a divine encounter where God does the saving, opening someone's heart and mind. I love what commentator David Garland wrote about this. This is what he said. He says, this passage calls us to faith because nothing can hinder the spread of the gospel because the spirit and not humans is in control. The spirit, not people, are in control. When you read this account, you don't come away and saying, isn't Philip amazing? I mean, no, angels are talking to him. He's getting whisked away. You're not amazed by Philip. You don't read this story and go, wow, isn't the Ethiopian eunuch incredible? You come away from this and saying, God is amazing. That he orchestrated all of this and saved someone. And you know what? This story is your story. God did the same for you. God prepared you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. God put you in that family. Maybe you didn't. But God began to speak to you, and God prepared a witness. It was a friend in high school. It was a college roommate. It was a coworker. It was an extended family member. It was your grandmother. It was a youth leader on a retreat. It was a pastor that taught the Bible. Somewhere, God prepared someone and put you in contact with that person, and you heard the gospel, and God saved you. And if you could go back and see what was happening, pull the curtain back, you would see God was behind it all. This should give us great faith, not that I got to knuckle through and go through some kind of super awkward thing, making it, no, that I've got to be alert and aware. I'm called to share the gospel, but I'm, Lord, I'm looking for where could you be opening a door? What should I say? Even when we're talking to friends and family members, still the Lord can guide our speech. We want to pray, Lord, help me know what to say. Help me know the right questions to ask. Help me to know when to just let it be and stop talking. Help me to know when to open my mouth. We still need the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Help me to help something to come up in the conversation so that there's a bridge into talking about Christ and what you've done for us. Help, help make this happen, Lord. There is this sense. There's this sense that God is behind it all, and that's what I want us to be encouraged by. I want to ask you, what would a fresh vision for the power of God to save people around you, how would that affect your approach to the Christmas season? If you really saw this, consider friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors. Also consider people you might meet unexpectedly, someone you don't know that you may encounter between now and the end of the year, or someone you barely know that you run into between now and the end of the year. You don't know how God may have prepared them to meet and hear the good news through your testimony, through your sharing the gospel story, through you sharing a scripture, through you inviting them to church. People are open this time of year to receiving a church invitation. Listen, some of us are going to be with family members, maybe that you haven't seen since last Christmas. 
and you know what they were like last Christmas, you have no idea what God's secretly been doing in their hearts over the last year. He may have been preparing them for this year and your love and your, your speaking up and sharing the love of God with them this Christmas. God reaches unexpected people. What's Philip doing on a desert road, leaving a revival, going to a desert road, riding in a chariot with a government official? What is going on? God takes people to unexpected places, unexpected relationships, unexpected to us, but very expected for his providential plan to save. You know, when you come out of this story and read it, you go, oh yeah, God is the author of salvation. God is the hero of the story. God is the actor. And he acted to save me, and he wants to use me as he acts to save others. As we close and receive communion today, I want to just draw your attention to the truth that aren't you so glad that God prepared your heart, that God prepared someone to talk to you, that God did it all? Communion is such a reminder as we take the body and the bread, the, 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 the body and the, the blood, the, the bread and the cup. It's such a reminder to us that salvation is the work of God. It's all about Him. It's not me and my wisdom. I'm not saved because I'm wise, because I'm good enough. I'm not saved because some powerful witness explained it all and convinced me. I'm, explained, I'm saved because God sent Jesus to die for me while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. And I'm saved because God uh, prepared my heart to see my need, convicted me of my sins, and he sent somebody to me with the gospel. That's why I'm here. Lord, all glory to you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.